Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions that we have in our editions of the Bible are not inspired. They're, they're later. The chapter divisions came first, and then around the time of the Reformation, the, the verse divisions. So they're not inspired, they're not original, but it is interesting that Isaiah has 66 chapters, and there are 66 books in the Bible. And the first part of Isaiah, which deals with the mainly with judgment, ends in chapter 39. And so the 40th book in the Scriptures is, is the New Testament. So where the uh, prophet begins with those glorious words, comfort, comfort, comfort ye my people, which we sang before the service, that if you were lining up the chapters of Isaiah with the books of the Bible, that would be the beginning of the New Testament. And so that's just an interesting thing. But what we see as Isaiah comes to the end of that first section on judgment is that increasingly he is being lifted up to greater and greater heights. He's, he's looking at, and then he's looking through, and he's looking past the immediate applications of his prophecies, and he's beginning to speak with language which is cosmic and universal. And that begins already here towards the end of the first part of the book, and it gets more and more like that until the, at the end of Isaiah, he's just rejoicing and prophesying about the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And you saw that when we read chapter 34. You see some, some hints of that because he speaks about judgment of God on the nations, and he uses the language of the last day, the last judgment. Look there at verse 4 of chapter 34. The host of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. This is the language of the, the day of judgment. When the Lord Jesus Christ shall return, the stars are falling from the sky, and the smoke of judgment goes up forever. And so just as in chapter 34, Isaiah is painting a picture of the ultimate judgment and the ensuing hellish wrath which will be placed upon those who hate God. So in chapter 35, after having described a world of, of rebellion and, and sin, and which is plunged into the ultimate consequences of sin, which is destruction and death. Now, in chapter 35, he speaks not anymore of the horrors of hell, but of the glories of heaven. And those things always come together. The light comes, John chapter 1, into the darkness, and that's why it's significant, because there's darkness to be overcome. And so grace and mercy come in the midst of judgment. And so if you follow through in the chapter here, we're at uh, chapter 35, verse 1, and we, we see it. This is gospel, but the gospel comes in the context of the taste, the bitter taste of judgment on sin because we see wilderness and, and there's dry land, but they're not going to stay barren. They're not going to stay unfruitful. They're going to change. And we have to remember why there is wilderness and desert in the first place. And for that, we need to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, if you have your Bible handy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 29. And as we read these verses, think about what we just read in chapter 34 of Isaiah, the background reading to the sermon. So Deuteronomy 29, I'll be starting at the end of verse 22. He speaks about the the afflictions of the land, the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick. Now verse 23, look at the connections here with Isaiah 34. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this? Done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods, and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. Now, so this wilderness and dry land harks back to the last chapter, that picture of destruction. And you may be saying, well, I thought there was a picture of destruction, of the judgment of the nations. But I want you to look at, at verse 34, uh, chapter 34, verse 1. God calls the nations. He says, listen, pay attention. And then he gives them two reasons that they should pay attention. Look there in verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against the nations. And so he speaks judgment against the nations and especially focuses it on Edom, which is kind of symbolic of all of the enemies of God's people. But then look at verse 8 of chapter 34. There's a second explanation why God called the nations together. And the second one is not the judgment of the nations anymore, but the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now, I don't like fighting without translation, but I'm going to have to do it today. Look there in verse 9. The translators thought they would help us. They thought they would add the word Edom, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew. And you can look at the footnote. The footnote in your Bible will tell you that. So there's nothing being hidden from you here. The Hebrew just says this in verse 9, and her stream shall be turned into pitch, and then follows all the destruction of devastation. And so it's quite likely that this second part of chapter 34 is a description of God's judgment upon his people. As we just read, it's very similar language there to Deuteronomy chapter 29. When they turn from him, this is the judgment that comes upon them. And you see there in verse 12 of chapter 34, there's no, no, there are no nobles, there's nothing to call a kingdom, its princes are nothing, it's the end of the royal house of David. And these verses speak of the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. It is a haunt of wild animals. That's what God said. If you don't follow me, if you don't trust me, if you don't obey me, if you don't love me, if you don't serve me, then I'll take you out of the land and the land will be filled with devastation, with wild animals. And then there are even the demons as well. If you still got your Bible open to chapter 34, look at verse 14. The wild goats, these are the satyrs, they're kind of goat-like demonic creatures, will cry to his fellow. And then look at the last part of chapter 34, verse 14. Indeed, there the night bird settles. And the Hebrew word there is lilith. And lilith, this is the only time she's mentioned in the scriptures, lilith is an ancient demon 
who is known, she was a Babylonian demon, and she was known by God's people. She's known as a child killer, the killer of children and pregnant women, the patron demon of abortions. And so this is a picture in chapter 34 of judgment upon the world and judgment upon God's unfaithful people. It shows us where sin brings us, that sin brings destruction, that disobedience brings death. That's the context into which Isaiah preaches the hopeful and glorious gospel words of chapter 35. And they sure needed it back then. They needed it because they were surrounded by worries and concerns. Ahaz was a wicked, idolatrous king. And after Hezekiah, Manasseh will be the worst king ever. He will fill Jerusalem with blood from end to end. The Assyrians will invade and surround Jerusalem. The Babylonians will destroy the the holy city and the temple. And so God's people, when Isaiah is preaching these words of chapter 35, they're looking at a very dark world and and a horrifying prospect for the future. And they need hope. And isn't that in a way, the same today. Today, Lilith is very active in our land as our land turns aside from the very words of Scripture that are inscribed and engraved in the stones of our parliament building as our government and our people, our society, spit upon those words and embrace godlessness and perversion and death A hundred thousand babies are murdered every year in Canada. And just last year, 10,000 people murdered by government-assisted suicide. It's skyrocketing every year. It gets more. This year, it's probably going to be 13 to 15,000 people. So we've got a lot of darkness to deal with around us as well. And we can sympathize a little bit with what God's people were looking at and experiencing in the time of Isaiah. But into that place of horror and judgment and despair, God comes. And God comes to open up a way out. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and with singing. And so the prophet refers to Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, which had been devastated under God's judgment, but were known historically as places of great fertility and life and growth and lush forests and abundant harvests. And God says, look, that's coming back. When you, when you go away from God, you get all the horrors. But when God comes back, then everything is better Again, you see, because the glory of the Lord shall be seen, the majesty of our God, and where God is present in his glory and his majesty, there cannot be dryness and barrenness and unfruitfulness and stinginess, but where God is present in his glory and majesty, there is joy and abundance and my cup overflows type of feasting. The deserts are turned into lush gardens. And that's true of the world. 
And it's true of our hearts and our lives as well. And so the prophet says in verse 3 of chapter 35, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Because God is coming. The Messiah is coming. God will break into this world and he will break us out of this world of sin, misery, sadness, and destruction. And as I, as I said, how God's people needed this comfort. Jerusalem was about to be besieged. Manasseh was about to fill Jerusalem with blood. The future Babylonian exile and destruction of the temple were, were coming. These are consequences of wickedness, the wickedness of the world, the sins of God's people. But, but the way out of all of that, the way out is the way forward. The way out of that pain is through the pain, and it is scary, but there is someone that is coming to bring us out of it. Behold your God, and he will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is a one of many, many, many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, the coming of God in the flesh. You know, we, we, we like to make Christmas into something very warm and fuzzy, a cute little baby. No cry did he make in the manger. But that's not the gospel. The gospel speaks about that little baby coming as light into the darkness and coming as God, who in order to save us will come with Vengeance, because salvation always implies judgment. The, the two things come together, and that's what we're headed for. The final day when Jesus shall return to judge the living and the dead. Our salvation means the judgment and the destruction of the enemies of God. They always come together. It's so important to emphasize that because we live in a world which tries to sell us the story that it's not necessary that salvation and judgment come together. Judgment's so negative. And we're Canadian. We don't do negative. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, that this is just reality. If your child is wrapped tight in a large anaconda or boa constrictor, you're not going to speak, if you're sane anyway, you're not going to speak soothingly to your child and say, well, we just need to accept that this is the way things are. This is a natural part of, of living in this world. That's not what you do if you love your child. You, you wrestle. You hack away. You crush the head of that serpent to save your child. Salvation always implies judgment, and we see that as the Scriptures prophesy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to, turn to Malachi chapter 3 for a moment. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is, is the last book in the, the Old Testament, so that's a little easier to find than some of the other minor prophets. Malachi 3, 1 to 5. This is another messianic promise. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like full of soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The King is coming, the Messiah is coming, God is coming to save his people and that salvation comes with vengeance, it comes with judgment upon those who hate God and love sin. And so Jesus comes to root that out, to destroy the very root of sin, to do battle with all the horrors of the forces of darkness and to triumph over them in the cross. And then some 40 years after the cross, to pour out his judgment on Jerusalem, leaving not one stone upon another, utterly destroying a wicked and unbelieving people. That's the vengeance. That's the recompense upon those who love sin and hate God. But look at verse 5. Verse 5 speaks of hope a massive change that God works in his people, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And as you read through Isaiah, he's always talking about eyes being opened and ears being opened or shut, as the case may be. And I want you to turn to chapter 6 again for a moment, which we looked at last week, and just see that judgment that God placed upon his people See how it connects with our verse 5 here in our chapter. Isaiah chapter 6, here's the judgment that God told Isaiah would be placed upon his people. Isaiah 6 verse 9, he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's what God does when we say no, no, no to his word over and over and over. When we despise the proclamation of the word and the sanctity of the sacraments. When we refuse to listen, there comes a time when God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. Now you can't hear it anymore. All you will hear are sounds, but there will be no chance for you to hear and to be changed and to believe. That's a horrifying judgment, brother and sister, on those who continue to neglect the word of God. But here we have the undoing of that judgment. Because now the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. For the believing remnant, and for us, the Gentiles, who come to faith and join the believing remnant of the Jews, we can see Christ with the eyes of faith. We can hear the word of God. We can see with our eyes, and we can hear with our ears, and we can understand with our hearts, and we can turn and be healed. 
That's the glory of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to undo the curse. And that changes everything. Because when we know the gospel, we hear the gospel, we see the gospel, then we know as we look at the dark world around us that this is not our home the way it's supposed to be. That we're moving out. That we're taking the highway to heaven. And even those who right now cannot walk for the moment can walk, they can run, they can skip along this highway. Even those who right now cannot speak, their lives can be a song of joy as they testify to the goodness of God in Christ as they walk along this road. It is the way out of the darkness. It is the way through the wilderness. It is the way back to the Father. It is the highway to heaven. And those who walk it are those who know the way. They know the truth. They know the life. And as they travel along it through the dead and the dry valleys, they make it a place of spring. Every Sunday, they hear the word and they see Christ placarded before them in the word and the sacraments. They draw water from the wells of salvation. And as we travel through the week, through this barren world, that living water sloshes and splatters everywhere out of our hearts and lives and touches the world around us and turns what is dead into what is abundant and alive. Jesus said, He who believes in me, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this way is a way of joy and new life for those who believe, but it is not a way for everyone. Look there in verse 8, it shall be called the way of holiness. And that way of holiness we have described in New Testament terms in Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bible handy, Hebrews chapter 12. Which speaks about this way, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus opened up the way. Jesus walked the way. Jesus got to the end of the way. And the apostle continues speaking about that way in the verses 3 to 11. He says, look, this way hurts. You endure hostility from the dark world around you like Jesus did. It is the way of the cross. But every pain, every hurt for the believer is not punishment. It is the discipline of God. God is disciplining us. He's he's using it to prepare us for glory because he loves us, verse 6. And then look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And now look at these words in verse 12 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Do you recognize them? Therefore, lift your drooping hands 
and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you see the echoes of our chapter here in Hebrews chapter 12. It is the way of the cross. It is the way through pain and through suffering to glory. And there's a great cloud of witnesses which has already followed Jesus along that way and are waiting for us to get to the finish line. They gave up everything in this world to gain Christ. They gave up sin to gain the Savior. And as you walk along this way, brother and sister, as I walk along this way, what are we trying to lug along with us? What are we trying to drag along with us that we don't want to let go? What are we looking back at longingly instead of looking forward to the destination? The Scripture warns us, remember Lot's wife. This way of holiness, this highway to heaven requires a total commitment. This way, look at verse 8, is not for the unclean. It is not for those who dabble in Christ and wallow in sin. And now I'm afraid I'm going to have to fight with our translation again. I, I don't like to do it, but look at the footnote there in verse 8. You probably have a footnote. It's hard to translate some of this Hebrew because a lot of words only appear once in the Hebrew Bible in, this, in these chapters. So it's a bit hard to figure out exactly the meaning sometimes. But look at the footnote of the end of verse 8 which gives an alternate translation, which the NIV uses, if they are fools, they shall not wander in it. And I think that is the preferable translation. This is not for the unclean, for those who love sin. It belongs to those who walk in the way. It does not belong to those who wander about in foolishness. You see, the fool in the Scripture is the one who does not know God, the one who has no understanding and doesn't want understanding, the one that chooses the fleeting pleasures of this world rather than the eternal treasures of Christ. It was Jim Elliot, the martyr, the South American martyr. Well, he, he wasn't from South America, but he died in South America as a missionary. And he said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I'll say it again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There's no room for fools on the highway to heaven, those who say in their hearts, there is no God. And the prophet continues in verse 9, there's no lion, there's no ravenous beast, and, and, and those were signs of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Because civilization's falling apart. The, the wild animals are coming into the, what used to be the civilized areas. But that's not going to be the way it is for the redeemed who walk on the way. There is no judgment for them. There is no bill to pay. The cost for building this highway has been paid. And the budget was infinite because the cost was uncountable. It was paid by the coming king 
It was paid by Jesus, born as a baby human, and he was born as a baby human, not to be a cute little picture on a Christmas card, but he was born as a baby human because humans can bleed, and humans can suffer, and humans can die, and that is the cost that he paid to build this highway. The cost for us to walk this highway to heaven was that the life was crushed out of Jesus. And his precious blood was shed and poured out, the precious blood of the eternal Son of God. And Jesus knew that was the cost. And he came anyway. That's exactly why he came, because he knew that there was hell to pay, and he paid it so we didn't have to. And so we are no longer the lost sinners wandering around in the darkness. We're no longer the, the children of wrath, but we are the redeemed. We are the ransomed of the Lord, verse 10. We are those whom he has bought with his precious blood. He has bought us body and soul, and we belong to him in life and in death, and we are going home, and we return and we come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy upon our heads. Ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. We're walking the highway in every situation in which God has placed us. Some of us are walking that highway in our wheelchair, in our hospital bed, shut in at home. Some of the believers in this world are walking that highway to heaven in a prison cell or a torture chamber of a concentration camp. We walk this highway to heaven in our physical and mental anguish, in our mourning, in every trouble, in every affliction, in every hilltop of joy gives us glimpses of the promised land and every valley we traverse through the pain brings us closer to the destination and drives us to worship. Heaven is already in our hearts, and every day our hearts are closer to heaven. And at the end of this way of holiness, the Father and his angels stand ready to welcome us into the Jerusalem that is from above, and to wipe every tear from our eyes, and to laugh and rejoice, to be glad and to celebrate with us as our pains, our disabilities, our brokenness disappear forever as our bodies and our minds are made gloriously new. God has done this. He sent his Son with power to save from guilt and darkness and the grave. He through this world will guide his own and lead us to his holy throne. Then this dark world will be no more. Sorrow and sighing will flee away, and we will see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall obtain gladness and joy, which will be a gladness and joy that not only never ends, but never ends stops growing. That is what is waiting for you, child of God, at the end of the highway. So let's keep walking 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.